Memorial Day weekend. It's interesting. I, I was looking at the text for this morning, and then I realized it's Memorial Day weekend, and we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning because it actually fits perfectly with the passage that we're in. Um, when I was at, uh, I was going to mention, I just loved the, the worship set this morning. Uh, when I was at the conference, the first night, a uh, Monday night, I called my wife at about I don't know, 11 o'clock, 1130, uh, after we were finished up. And she said, your voice sounds funny. And she said, you tired? I said, yeah, I'm tired. It took us 21 hours to get there. The plane flights got all messed up. And, but I said, and my voice sounds funny because I think I strained it. Uh, folks, I'll tell you what, uh, I love our worship here, and the worship there was different. Standing in a room with five, six hundred men that love Jesus, we were singing, man. We were rocking the house. It was good. So much so that my voice was kind of wonky by the time I got to the end of the day. Here in Romans, we've looked at, in the last study, we looked at chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Uh, we looked at seven benefits. Uh, Paul, after going through a lengthy teaching in chapter 4, at the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, on what it is to be uh, sanctified, justified by faith, uh, more than just as if I'd never sinned, because we're not only counted as sinless, we are counted as righteous, that we actually get the righteousness of God placed on our lives. We looked at that. And then he goes into, in chapter 5 here at the beginning, and, and we'll look at it more today, at how we benefit from being justified by faith. Uh, I'm going to read the first five uh, verses again. Uh, as you guys know, we're big on context around here. And they set the context for what we're looking at this morning. So uh, let's just dive into verse 1 of chapter 5. He says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So these seven things, if you look at it, uh, we see here that the benefits that we looked at, we have peace with God. We have access to God. That hadn't happened in the old covenant. This is unique to the new covenant in Jesus' blood, uh, that we have a standing in his grace. It is only by his grace that we stand. We of all people have hope that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And we know that this life isn't all that there is. When I was at the conference this week, one man after another, the first speaker was a man who had been held captive in Iran uh, and beaten every day by his captors. Uh, at the end of, uh, near the end of his captivity, uh, being imprisoned in Iran, uh, the man who had come in every day and beat him up, he was standing there talking to him, and, and, and this gentleman, the Christian guy, said, look, we've gotten to know each other. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. And would you just be my friend? And he said, it totally took this guy by surprise. And he, he said, you know, that's not our way. And, and, and he said, look, and he put his hand out, and he said the Iranian guard began to weep. And he stuck his hand back out too. That after all of that intensity, he was able to, and he said, I never saw the guy again, but they came and they got me out of my cell and put me in a larger cell because he asked if there was anything I needed. And I said, I could use a larger cell. He was in like a five by eight cell during this time. The point is, is that one of the things that we've seen in this passage is that God gives us a divine perspective, doesn't he? And it's not a perspective that fits the world's idea of how we live our lives. Praise God. It's different. He develops godly character in us through the trials. We looked at that. We looked at five things and how we grow through trials last time around a couple of weeks ago. And it's because he's producing that godly character in us. He uses the tribulation. He uses the trial. He uses the pressure 
to produce growth. We finally saw finally that, that all of this is the result of being loved by God. The love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 5, now in verses 6 through 11, which we're going to cover today, we're going to look at an extraordinary love. The love that God has for us, and it is truly extraordinary. Uh, Paul continues to explore the benefits of being justified by faith in looking at what Jesus achieved for us at the cross. And he takes a closer look uh, at the contrast between our relationship before coming to Christ, before our lives were touched by Christ, and after our lives were impacted by Christ. Uh, having told us that God's love has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, he now goes on to describe that love. He now goes on to, to show us how it's demonstrated in our lives to us, in us, and then through us. Because there's only one thing that God says in receiving this love. He says, give it away. I saw example after example this week of men whose lives were pressed in, giving it away. Let's, uh, let's look at verses 6 through 11 together, and then I'm going to come back and we'll unpack it a bit. He says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So what was our condition outside of Christ, past tense. If you know the Lord this morning, if, if, uh, if you don't, we'll have an opportunity towards the end of the service to take care of that, especially if you're catching us online or if you're here. Uh, we're glad you're here. We'd love to see you make that step. So what is our condition? And, and remember, Paul's writing to a, a Christian church. He's writing to the church at Rome. So he, these, that's assumed that he's talking to Christians. And he's talking about our condition outside of Christ. In verse 6, he says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. So the first thing that we see here is that we were without strength. We were powerless. We were under judgment. We were storing up wrath. We saw that earlier in this letter. Uh, The scales were irretrievably heavily weighted against us. We could not do anything to tip that balance. Our sin utterly condemned us. Again, if you look at what we covered in the first three chapters from chapter 1, verse 18 or so, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, nobody gets off. It is condemnation spread to all men. Our lives were caught in the grip of sin. We were alienated from God. We were on our way to hell. We were powerless to do anything about it in our own strength. There's nothing that we could do. We cannot do enough good things. You can't help enough ladies across the street. You can't give it the, you, you just, there's no way to reconcile this other than it being reconciled for us. Truly, we're in a position of weakness and helplessness. Uh, to me, I, I look at this and it just illustrates the foolishness, guys, uh, of the, the mindset out there that we can actually do something to affect a change in our status before God. Absolute foolishness uh, through self-righteousness or through works or whatever it is. The second thing we see here from verse 6 is that Christ died for the ungodly. It tells us a little more about our condition outside of Christ. The Greek word for the word for, when it says that Christ died for the ungodly, is it's the Greek word hooper. Uh, what it means is for the sake of, or on behalf of, or instead of. So when Christ died for the ungodly, he's talking obviously about us. It's not some group out there uh, that he died instead of, in the place of. 
We were ungodly. I mean, and what, that, what does that mean? Essentially, it means we didn't care about God. Oh, we might have had an appearance of caring about God. Uh, you know, the, the, and that's a whole different study. But we essentially lived in abject rebellion towards God. God wasn't on our minds. He wasn't in our thoughts. He didn't occupy our thinking. To remedy that situation, while we were still ungodly, powerless to do anything about that, to change that, he's saying, here, Christ died for us. Thus, in the process, offered reconciliation to God for us. What he says here, too, I think this is interesting. He says that all of this was in due time. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, we read, you don't have to turn there, uh, the, the Apostle Paul says, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son. In other words, there was a predetermined time for the coming of Christ. The world was prepared spiritually, economically, linguistically, politically, philosophically, geographically. I mean, all of these things came into alignment for the advent of Christ, the spread of the gospel. There are five things that I listed here, and there are more, I'm sure, but these are primary things that came into alignment, as I said, uh, in the first century uh, that would be part of the, the, the due time that he's talking about here. Uh, it was in the days, first of all, of the Roman Empire. And the, the, the Roman Empire was huge. It was the largest world empire to date. Uh, and they covered a huge amount of territory from Europe through Asia, down into Africa, uh, very large. What they instituted was called the Pax Romana. And that was called Roman peace, is what it translates to. And what that did, I mean, it was the first time that they had, they had soldiers that actually patrolled the roads, the first highway patrol. <laughs> and it, they made it safe to travel. Because up until then, it was very unsafe to travel. It was, you took your life into your hands to make a trip. They were known for being heavy-handed for law and order, and that instilled fear in the minds of the people that would trouble others in their travels. Yeah, it was still dangerous in ways, but it was much better than it had ever been. That coupled with the fact that the Romans built roads. Interesting. Uh, they were known for their architecture, for their projects, and they paved, and I say that loosely, not asphalt, but they paved the empire. They built roads throughout the empire. They connected the empire. Uh, so travel was not only safer, it was faster. The third thing that you look at at this period in time is because the empire was so big and because they had conquered so many different peoples, they instituted a common language. It's called Koine Greek. It's the language that the New Testament is written in. And Greek was the universal language. Much like, much like English is sort of the universal language in different parts of the world, probably less so as we go, but uh, there was a, a universal language that connected people. The fourth thing that we're looking at here, as far as that goes, is that the Bible had been translated. From about the 3rd to the 1st century B.C., the, the, the Bible, the Old Testament, obviously, uh, had been translated into Greek, into the universal language. And so now the Bible, the, the word of God, would be more accessible than it ever had been before. And, and people were able to have access to the word of God. The last thing here is the Apostle Paul himself, the man who wrote this letter, who wrote 13 letters, <laughs> the bulk of the letters in the New Testament, uh, it was a very uniquely qualified individual. He was born Saul of Tarsus. And Tarsus was a city in the Roman province of Cilicia. It was to the northwest of Israel. And there he grew up. He evidently relocated back to Jerusalem because he grew up as a Roman citizen. He had dual citizenship, but he was also a Jew, a devout Jew. If you know much of his life, he was very well educated. He had the equivalent of a double PhD in theology, in Jewish theology. So very well qualified, hated the church when he first, uh, when he rose to having authority in, uh, in the ranks of Phariseeism. 
But here, this guy, now he gets saved. He gets knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus, and you may know the story. And God touches his life, and now this guy with dual citizenship knows how to speak to the Jews. He understands the word of God, and he has access. He can freely travel throughout the empire. All of this in due time. In verse 6, we see that, he's, that Paul, he's describing a state of enmity or hostility towards God, the, 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 the godlessness. And into this, we see Christ's death as being substitutionary, uh, a death in the place of others. In verse 7, he goes on, he says, Scarcely, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. He's saying that in verse 7, which also uses the word hooper, to die in the place of, that a person willing to die for a righteous man or, or, or a good man, obviously is offering himself as a substitute so that the righteous or the good man can continue to live. This would be the highest expression of human love and devotion that there is. And it's a very uncommon love. I got to, as I mentioned, thinking about Memorial Day. It's a time when we pause and we remember, we reflect and honor all those who have fallen in military service to our nation. Uh, And looking at that, looking at the highest award for valor in combat, the Congressional Medal of Honor, uh, did some studying on it. I looked at, I, I began to read in preparing for this morning, because I, I love history as well, began to read the accounts of people who have received the Medal of Honor. And I'll tell you, there are some amazing accounts. Uh, the Medal of Honor itself was first issued in 1863. Um, since then, millions of uh, uh, soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, coast guard personnel have faithfully served our nation. But only about 3,500, a little over 3,500 Congressional Medals of Honor have been awarded. Uh, I began to think about that. The point here is that the members of the armed forces are among those who would consider others worth saving, even at the cost of their own lives. And the stories of the recipients are often terrifying accounts. That was something that I found was a common thread. These guys are terrified. And, and their bravery is they're building upon one another as they're out there in the, the foxhole or as they're out there engaged in combat or they're charged with guarding these people that are, uh, the enemy is trying to destroy. And, um, uncommon bravery. Many, perhaps most, of those who receive the award receive it posthumously uh, because their efforts to save others were frequently at the expense of their own lives. Something that all of those who have been rescued by the people who would later receive this medal would have in common is that they were helpless. They couldn't save themselves. It's something that Paul is saying of all of us as he begins this text with, at the appointed time, while we were still helpless, couldn't save ourselves. The difference is, is that he begins at that point to pile up some pretty unflattering and, and derogatory terms. He speaks of, in verse 6, the ungodly, as we looked at. In verse 8, sinners. In verse 10, enemies. And in, in, in the last one, and we'll get to it in verse 10, but it's pretty harsh. <laughs> you likely won't find many Medal of Honor recipients going out there and charging across the battlefield and risking their lives to die for the enemy. As Paul's point here is that there's nothing in us. There's nothing we could supply. There's nothing that would entice Jesus to go to the cross for us. The love of God contrasts with human love in both its nature and its the degree to which it is extended. As we see in verse 8, he says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When he says God demonstrates, it, it, the, the tense there is it's, it's, it's in a continuing tense. It means he keeps on showing his own love for us. That while we were helpless, powerless, godless sinners, Christ died in our place. That's what's being said, folks. And I'll tell you what, 
That's a powerful, powerful statement. We're talking about an extraordinary love. Though some, as we have seen, might possibly be willing to die to save the lives of good people, (laughs) although that's rare, Um, the Lord Jesus went well beyond that. Well beyond. He died in the place of the powerless, those without strength. He died in the place of the ungodly. He died in the place of the sinful. He died in the place of his enemies. That's why from the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The very people who were executing him, like the Iranian prisoner extending his hand in friendship to the man who was beating him daily. Uncommon love. The demonstration of God's love is displayed in the fact that Jesus died, but more so, and understand this, yes, it's important that we understand that God was demonstrating his love to us through the death of Christ. It's seen also in the fact of who Jesus died for, for you and I, undeserving sinners, enemies of God, rebels, Think about it. If God does this much for his enemies, how much more will he do for those who are now counted as his friends? This emphasizes the fact that the reasons for God's love are found 100% in him, not in us. Verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Now, this is the first of five much more sayings. He says much more five times in chapter five. This is the first of those statements. And Paul begins to build a case for what we have in Christ. Now, not moving away from what our condition was before Christ. Now he begins to talk about what we have in Christ. When he says much more, the Greek word is polos malan. And what it is, is heavily, what it means is to heavily weight the scales. In other words, When you come to Christ, when you avail yourself of the power of the cross, the work of Christ, the person of Christ, when you are covered by his righteousness, that the scales now are so heavily weighted in your favor, they were weighted against you and nothing you could do, and now they're so heavily weighted in your favor that there's nothing you could do to get that to go back the other way. That's the grace of God. That's... Polos Malon, heavily weighting the scales. So the question becomes, what is our condition in Christ, present and future? We know what it was. He's just told us. The first thing we see here is he says, having been justified, past tense. Having been made guiltless, now being uncondemned, moving from being condemned to being uncondemned, and being made absolutely righteous, perfect righteousness by the cleansing blood of Christ. That's how we're saved from the wrath of God. Uh, Paul's already made a reference to the wrath that's to come. In in chapter 2, remember we looked at that in verses 8 and 9. He's already pointed out in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned. There are no exceptions. The result of sin is being subject to the wrath of God. And now he's saying through this reconciliation, that wrath is gone, that the scales have been tipped, then that applies directly to you and to me, that by faith in the finished work of Christ, this is ours. When he says saved from wrath, let's look at the, the construction in this in, in the Greek. It, it either, it means one of two things, and it, it depends on how it's rendered, but the construction in this sentence tends to render it one way. It's either saved out of wrath or delivered from any contact with wrath. The structure indicates the latter, that we're saved away from any contact with the wrath of God. It will not touch us, is what he's saying here, either in time or in eternity. We will not experience the wrath of God. Anyone who has the blood of Christ on their life, the wrath is gone. In this life and in the one to come, The wrath of God that was revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, as we saw in verse 18 of chapter 1, was placed on Jesus as a substitute in the place of us, of believers. 
Verse 10, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We were all enemies of God. Every one of us. We toward him and he toward us. I want to talk about that for a minute. We needed to be reconciled. Not only are we enemies of God, but outside of Christ, God is the enemy of the souls of men. Think about that. Let it sink in. Question. I ask it rhetorically. Is God dangerous? Is God dangerous? Many people's version of God, sort of the God that you put in your back pocket, is, oh, no, 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 no. He's just a happy God, and I'm going to show up in heaven. He's going to pat me on the head, tell me how wonderful I am, and that's that. That's not the God of the Bible. (laughs) We tend to think that if we were reconciled to somebody, that we were the ones who had the enmity, that we were the ones who were the hostile party, not the other person. So when we're talking about reconciliation here, I want to have a biblical view of reconciliation in order for us to understand what Paul's saying here. And I want to look at the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. He talks about reconciliation. He says, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, note, your brother has the enmity, he is hostile towards you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled, there's that word, to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Stay with me on this. So here you have a brother who has a grievance against you. That's pretty clearly understood. So how does Jesus talk about reconciliation? He says, you go be reconciled to him. Keep that in mind as we read Romans 5.10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God is what Paul says there. Here's the point. That being reconciled to our brother in Matthew 5.24 means that our brother has something against us, then being reconciled to God in Romans 5.10 would mean that God had something against us as well. We were enemies of God. That something is sin. Separated us from God. We were hostile towards him. We looked at it and we've looked at, remember in chapter one, we looked at the wrath of abandonment where God essentially said to a people, you want to abandon me? I will abandon you. That the wrath of God is poured out. We looked at that in relevant terms. I don't need to go through it again. That's why Paul here in verse nine, he bears out, he, he, he says, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Jesus's blood. Because wrath rests upon the life of every soul that doesn't know Christ. We're not merely his enemies because we were rebels. He was our enemy because we are rebels. So the answer to my question is yes. Outside of Christ, God is very dangerous. He's holy. Therefore dangerous because of our sin. It's the whole point of the gospel. It's the whole point of reconciliation. I got to thinking about this, and I was remembering back in our studies in the book of Hebrews, uh, I remember when I was teaching on the tabernacle. And the fact that the tabernacle, for those people now, in the old covenant, sin could be covered. Remember, once a year, the high priest would go behind the veil into the Holy of Holies, and he would offer, first he would offer for himself, because he had to be cleansed in order to performed the the ritual acts of cleansing for the people. But if you look at that whole thing, that the tabernacle essentially was a protective device. And it was used to protect people from the wrath of God. That's how God's righteous requirements under the law were satisfied. If that didn't happen, the people were exposed. Now, in Christ not just covering sin, but full reconciliation is available to us. Protection from the wrath of God is available to us. And it's not found in a doctrine, it's found in a person. His name is Jesus. He went to the cross for you, for me. Looking here in the second half of verse 10, he says, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. 
Left to ourselves, we felt no need of being reconciled to him. It's just not something that, again, if we're living in an ungodly manner, it's just not something that's part of the, uh, the course of our life. But think of it. We literally were enemies of God. In verse 8, Paul says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us. But God intervened in a display of pure grace. Didn't do anything to deserve it. Didn't do anything to earn it. Didn't do anything to merit it. He said, I love you because I choose to love you. And he says, as a matter of fact, I chose to love you while you were my enemy, while you were in rebellion, while you were far from me and didn't care. That's an extraordinary love. The substitutionary death of Christ removed the cause of our hostility towards God, namely our sins. By faith in Christ, we have been reconciled to God. Understand, folks, that reconciliation, it's an accounting term. It's balancing the books. And, and, and because there was no way that we could put enough on deposit to balance the books, it was not possible. He says, let me do that for you through the work of my son. Let me pay the debt. I love in the book of Colossians, it talks about the certificate of decrees that existed against us was canceled. It was taken out of the way. It was reconciled. That's the reconciliation that we get by faith. It's part of our justification. He's still talking about justification here. He's still talking about what it is to be justified in the sight of God. To actually have the righteousness of God resting on your life that he reconciled it for you. I also want to mention, too, that being reconciled, it's not just helpful when we die. It's not just life insurance, okay? I mean, that's a good part of it. As I mentioned last week, we have the best retirement program in the universe. But it's effective in our life now. Being reconciled to God is what changes our worldview. It's what affects the way that we interact in our lives. When I, again, at this conference and, and seeing the men that were there to share, I remember uh, Alistair Begg got up there and uh, he began to share about the things that were impacting him in his church. I think it's in Cleveland or wherever it is. Uh, and I just remember thinking, Lord, I just, I, I love this man's worldview the way that he looks at life. Because he, like all of us, we look at life differently. We've been given a divine perspective. We've been given uh, a heavenly uh, look at, at the things that are going on around us. I used to hear when I was a young Christian, don't be so heavily minded that you're no earthly good. And I have come to thoroughly disagree with that statement. I totally believe that the more heavenly minded we are, the more earthly good we shall be. That's just how it is. If we are not living separate, if we are not living set apart, we need to make some adjustments, don't we? If we're living for this world and all that, that's all we're living for, we need to make some adjustments. We need to get a little bit of housekeeping done. The point is, is that the reconciliation that we have with God, it's not just good for eternity, it's good for life. It's good for this life. One of the things, one of the primary things, and, and I just want to uh, just be, uh, just open up some transparency here. Many times in my work as a pastor, even looking at my own life, I deal with people that have continued to bear the weight of sin in their lives. After they've asked God to forgive them, after they have taken it to the cross, but there's just this thing inside that says, you know, God, I don't know if you could ever get past that. I'll tell you what, the accuser of the brethren is real. And he will tie you up under a heavy load of guilt and shame if you don't really believe this. Allow the Spirit of God to enlarge your faith if that's you, if you've given it to him, it's forgiven. God, he's forever done with dealing with believers on the basis of wrath. Now, he may work in your life. As a loving father, he may chastise you. And we've talked about that. 
probably a good idea to check that out because if you're not chastised by God, he says in Hebrews chapter 12, that you may not belong to him. But being reconciled, having the books balanced is just that. That thing that perhaps you're looking at as being in the way between you and God has been taken out of the way. And Jesus said, he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. If Jesus' death had such power to save us, how much more will his life have power to keep us? Verse 11, and not only that, I love that. <laughs> Again, he says, and, and furthermore, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. In verse 2, he says, we rejoice. The word is also translated exult or boast. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. In verse 3, he says, we glory or boast or exult. It's the same word. Uh, in our tribulations, our troubles. In verse 11 here, he says, we glory in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We boast in him. The Greek word, kauchamai, it means to express an unusually high degree of confidence in someone or something being exceptionally noteworthy or boastworthy. And when Paul is saying this, he's saying, we boast. If I boast, I boast in the Lord. If I boast, it's not in in me, it's in him. It's not in my insufficiency, it's in him, in his sufficiency in my life. It's not in my rebellion. Yeah, I know my life outside of Christ, but it's in his reconciliation. We glory in that, we exult in that, we boast in that because he's changed our lives. We have much to boast about. We've been reconciled from being powerless to being strengthened on the inner man, inner woman. In Ephesians 3.16, Paul says we're strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. It's part of the work that God does in us is he strengthens us. He he gives us his strength. So we've gone from being weak to being strengthened. We've gone from being ungodly to having purity and purpose in our lives. 2 Peter Chapter 1, verse 3, Peter says, His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, there's the opposite. The antithesis of godlessness is godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. He's given us a new life. He's given us the ability to live godly. It's not my godliness, it's his. It's imputed to me. It's part of the, part of the deal. It's part of what he does. He's given us the ability to go from sinner to saint. That's by divine declaration. The word saint means holy one. We're going to look at that beginning in chapter 6. We're going to look at what it is to be declared holy. It's called sanctification, to be sanctified by God. And then also, that's the doctrinal side. That's the positional side. That at the moment we come to Christ, that we are declared holy. That we are seen as holy. And then you're going, I don't know if you saw me this morning before church. Well, there's the practical side as well. And the practical side of God's holiness is where he is making us holy. That's what Peter's talking about here. His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. None of us has arrived there yet, and yet we're in process. That's why, folks, it is so important to avail yourself of God's agenda for you. Do not think that you know his agenda for the person sitting next to you, and I'm including spouses. That's a surefire road to trouble. I know, I've shared this before, but it was so profoundly affected me. I'm going to share it again. I was at a men's camp one time, and we're just getting ready to get started. There's about 300 men at this thing, and and um, I was sitting in my lawn chair getting ready for, it. people were kind of starting to congregate, and the, the pastor of this church, it was a, uh, larger church in Redding, California, and we we're up in the Cascades, and and uh, he stood up there, you know, kind of to signal we're getting started. And this guy raised his hand and he said, "Pastor, can I speak?" And he said, "Yeah, go ahead." And the guy said, "I just want to ask you all, will you stop getting on my case about smoking cigarettes?" And I just kind of hung my head and I thought, "Oh man, I wonder who's yeah, that's a health issue, but you know, that's kind of weird." 
He said, let me tell you something. He said, you know, I go outside of the camp. I, I'm very respectful, and I know that it's something that I needed to, to get rid of, and, and, and I'm working on it. He said, but let me tell you what's going on in my life. He said, I was a heroin addict, and God has delivered me from heroin addiction. And then he started to cry, and I, I still feel the emotion of that moment. And he said, and God has given me back my family, my wife, and my kids. And you guys are getting on me about smoking cigarettes. And I just thought, oh, God. <laughs> and I just started praying for the people that were bugging him, for him. Folks, it's not our place to think that we know what God should be doing in another person's heart. It is our place to pay attention to what he wants to do in mine. That's why Jesus said, when they crack open the doors of your church, are they going to see love? They better. Or are they going to see judgmental people who are out there trying to fix one another? The first word that I got when I was brought on as an elder, this is back in the 1980s. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting older. Anyway, this guy, the pastor of this church came, and I'm sitting down, and I'm about a foot taller than he is. He was a shorter guy. Maybe not quite a foot, but I was considerably taller. <laughs> and, and he got down and with, with the authority of Nehemiah. That's <laughs> so I used to call him, Nehemiah. Um, and he, he poked me in the chest, and he said, Now you listen, Okay. He said, these are not your sheep. These are God's sheep. It's not your place to change them. You leave them alone. You pray for them. You love them. And let God do the work. Best advice I ever got. I've known pastors that have a miserable ministry because they're out there trying to do this work in the flesh, having begun in the spirit. Are you now being made perfect in the flesh? No, I hope not. Not here. Not us. We love each other. We have great room. We have grace for one another, for God to do the work in us, to do that divine surgery that only he can do, because when he does it, I'm good. If somebody else does it, they push. What's my tendency? Push back. Let God do the work. Have room for him to do the work in other people's lives. I mentioned as we got started this morning, be committed to prayer. You are moving things in the spiritual realm. If you see something with a brother or sister, that may not be something that, that, is, that has come to your attention so that you confront. It very likely, more likely is, and I'm not saying that we don't confront sin or, or big issues. It's not what I'm saying at all. But you see an area, you see a flaw, you see an area, you pray for that person. You ask God to do the changing. Again, it's just so simple. And the body of Christ runs beautifully when we're running on grace. If we're running on criticism and judgmentalism and all of that, then we're essentially not looking any different from the world. We're just trying to put clothes on the emperor when he hasn't got any. Be mindful of these things, folks. We have gone from being sinners to saints by his power, not ours. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, we read this. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous, talking about people that don't have this justification we're talking about, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers. He's got a list. Nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. I love what he says in verse 11, though. He says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, declare holy, but you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. That's us. That's the transaction. That's what we're talking about this morning. We've gone from being an enemy of God to being a friend of God. John uh, in chapter 15, Jesus speaking to his men uh, there right before he goes to the cross. He says, no longer do I call you servants because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But now... I call you friends by virtue of the fact that he went to the cross for you. You're his friend. You're a friend of God. That's an extraordinary love. That's a magnificent, powerful love that we don't possess in ourselves, but he, by his Holy Spirit, 
will impart that to us. It's the primary fruit of his spirit. When we look in Galatians chapter 5 and he says, it talks about the deeds of the flesh, things you do, as opposed to the fruit of the spirit, things that God produces in you, the primary aspect of that is love. You could look at that as the fruit of the spirit is love, manifesting is joy, manifesting is peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. It's the fruit of his spirit working inside of us, not because we have a checklist to live by so that we can be good Christians. Doesn't get it. You're a friend of God. You've gone from being a sworn enemy, gone from being a person that the wrath of God in a very real sense rests upon your life to the wrath of God now being rolled away. You've gone from being a person that the scales were so heavily weighted against you, there was nothing you could do to affect that. To by simply putting your faith in Christ and the finished work of Christ and the work of the cross, the the, the scales being so weighted for you. And we'll look at that as we go further here in Romans, that you can't outsin the grace of God. You cannot do it. That you are securing your father's hand because those scales have been tipped in such a way that you can't get it back the other way. If you really belong to him, that's true. You are secure eternally. Not here to go into that whole thing, but I'm happy to talk to anybody about it. So from enemies of God to friends of God. I want to take a moment as we wrap up to address anyone who may be outside of this. Perhaps you're catching us online or uh, you're here in the building this morning. The relationship that we're talking about is one that comes, that's offered by God freely. John 3.16 says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. I think it's interesting that right before he tells Nicodemus, he's talking to a guy, a religious leader named Nicodemus there. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. And I've always pictured that. I think, why did he say that then? Because if you know the story back there in the Old Testament about when the serpents were coming, the people were rebellious. And so God allowed serpents to go and they were the fiery serpents. If they bit someone, they would die. And Moses pleaded with God and God said, build this big brass pole, put a snake on it, put it in the middle of the camp that whoever looks to the pole would live. Jesus told Nicodemus that he used that illustration to say, look, that pole was, it was a symbol for the cross, which would come centuries later. Look to the cross, find life. If you're within the sound of my voice this morning and you have not looked to the cross, you might not be dying today physically, but you're an enemy of God. And there's nothing there but eternal separation from God. You can fix that. Give your life to Christ. Let him invade your life with his Holy Spirit. Simply put your faith and your trust in him that when he did go to that cross, now you looking to the cross can live and not just have a good life here, but life eternally in his presence. That's the gospel. That's the word that we're talking about. That's what we're looking about when we talk about the transaction that allows us to go, to be reconciled, to go from being enemies of God to being a friend of God, to go from being outside of his promises to now being a person who inherits his promises. You can fix it if you don't know the Lord with a simple prayer, simply praying something like, God, I've lived my life away from you. I see myself as being that rebel that Pastor John's talking about here this morning. I see myself as being in that place of living far from you, perhaps living according to my own ideas about you, but I'm turning from the old life. I'm turning from my sin. I'm repenting of my sin. Repent means to change your mind, to turn around. And I'm giving my life to you. I'm asking you to forgive me for my sins, to cleanse me, to justify me and to give me a new life. He will do it. As we look, as we go forward this week, again, I, 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 I'll have more to share of the things that were going on at this conference um, in time ahead. Um, as I mean, I've been going to, to pastor's conferences since the 80s, the 1980s for a long time. And I have never been to a conference where the opening 
speaker right to the closing stuff was so meaty and so relevant. We live in a world that is tilting out of control. We live in a country that is in terrible shape. We live in a time where persecution for the church is a real thing. It's just beginning. The church has become soft in many ways. And and I'm not here to beat anybody up and say, yeah, you got to get it right. But I do take seriously the fact that like the watchman on the wall, when you see things coming, there's a responsibility and a duty to warn the people of God. We're going to be looking at that a little bit more in the weeks to come. So let's pray. Father, your goodness, you are so good. There's no other word that you are just so good to us. You pour out your goodness on us. And Lord, as you pour out your spirit in us, let our lives be lived in the light of who you are, lived in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, lived in the light that we are called to live lives that are separate, set apart from the course of this world. Or we can't do that ourselves. But we humbly ask this morning that you continue that conforming work in each of us, that you continue to pour out your spirit on our lives, that, Lord, as we experience your love, that we would just have an overwhelming desire to give it away, to love others that are perhaps unlovable in our lives. Lord, draw us close. If there is anything that stands between you and me, you and us, put your finger upon it. Give us the ability to identify it and take it out of the way. Lord, we want to live in these days intentionally. We want to live with a purpose, a divine purpose in mind. You've given us a divine perspective. Now let us look at life, look at others around us through that lens, through the lens of hope that you've given us. Thank you, Lord, for your peace. Thank you for your Holy Spirit dwelling in each of us. We pray now that you would go before us the rest of this day that you would have your way with us. And Lord, just continue to draw us. We love you. We praise you this morning in Jesus' name.